you have your Bibles, feel free to go ahead and turn to 1 Timothy chapter 3. That's where we'll be today. Um, as I mentioned last week, uh, leading up to the annual meeting every year, we, we spend um, a sermon on deacons and a sermon on elders that we'd be reminded of just how God has structured the church. And so last week we looked at deacons. And deacons are the means in which the physical needs of the church are met. Deacons preserve the unity of the church. And deacons protect the preaching of the word through the prioritizing of meeting the physical needs. Now, this week, we're going to be looking at elders. And if deacons are the primary means in which Jesus builds the church up in love by meeting the physical needs, the elders are the primary means in which Jesus protects the purity of the church. So again, last week when we were here, I said, you know, when we start talking leadership structures and roles within church, some people kind of go, do I need to know this? Yes. Yes, we must know this. For one, we're talking about the body of Christ, the bride of Christ, the very means in which he has called us to work together. And what we see is that deacons and elders are gifts by God to the church for the health and life of of the church. And so we cannot uh, misunderstand these roles. And what we're going to see today, that if a church compromises on the role of an elder, then the church will begin to compromise on the gospel and then cease to be a church. And we see that happen throughout the New Testament and then throughout church history as well. Um, one of Satan's greatest tactics has been to attack elders within the church. I mean, think about it. How many scandals have you heard regarding pastors? How many pastors have you heard that um, have hurt others through poor leadership, through sexual morality, through false teaching or faithless preaching? How many people no longer gather with the church because of the hurt they've received by a pastor. I mean, it is a powerful weapon of the enemy. And so Satan has always attacked the elders of the church. This is not a new tactic. In fact, Paul told the elders in Ephesians, he gets them together one last time, and, and he tells them this in Acts chapter 20, verse 29. He says, I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves, so among the elders, will arise men speaking twisted, thing, twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. These false teachers, these wolves, are now elders in the church. They've taken positions of leadership. And so today, we're in 1 Timothy. Timothy is a young pastor being addressed by Paul. Where do you think he pastors at? Ephesus. What do you think the problem they're facing in? False teachers. First Timothy chapter 1, verse 3. This is what we read. As I urged you, this is Paul talking, as I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. In chapter 4, he will call the teaching of these men demonic. And at the end of chapter 1, Paul names two of the false teachers that he's actually removed from the church, Hymenaeus and Alexander. And so when we come to Timothy, there's a great urgency 
and why Paul is writing this letter, and he's writing it to instruct Timothy on how to equip the church so it will remain faithful and maintain its purity. And what we're going to see today is that godly elders are the means in which Jesus protects the purity of the church. And so with that, I want to invite you to go ahead and stand, and we're going to read chapter 3, verses 1 through 7. We stand each week at the reading of God's word because this is God's word, and we do so to honor him and to remind ourselves. Chapter 3, verse 1, the saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach. The husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders so that he may not fall into, the, into disgrace, into the snare of the devil. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for this word. We thank you that you save us, that we would be joined together into your living temple, into your body called the church. And Lord, you gift every single member of the church with spiritual gifts for the building up of the church. And we praise you for that. So Lord, as we particularly look at elders today, give us wisdom to understand the importance of this position. But may we also see that this position in this role is given to the church by you because you love your church. So all the gifts and the provisions that you give to the church are means in which we worship you. And so Lord, may we not miss that today. May we see your grace and your kindness and your goodness on how you care for us and how you provide for us and how you protect us and how you build us up. In your name, Jesus, amen. You all may be seated. Um, probably before, before jumping in, just do want to remind us, we said this last week, every member of the church is gifted for the building up of the church. So every member is called to service. So we are looking last week, deacons, this week, elders, at two particular roles in which they particularly build up the church. But every member is called to use their gifts for the building up of the church. So let us not miss that. Um, we're going to look at the work of an elder. That's where we're going to start off today. Uh, we see at the very beginning, verse 1, the words, the saying is trustworthy. Now just, just pause right there. Just stop. Paul uses this saying when he get, wants to get our attention. He uses it five times in the pastoral letters, three times in this letter. It's kind of like when a, when a parent uses the first, middle, and last name of their child, what are they trying to do at that moment? Get their attention. He's saying, hold on, stop right now. I need you to listen. And so when Paul says the saying is trustworthy, think all three names have just been called. First, middle, and last. And we're to perk up and go, okay, what is this, Paul? 
So what is so important that he wants us to see, that he wants us to pay attention to, that we cannot miss? So he's going to direct our attention now to what we see as the office of the overseer. And so first, I just want us to understand a little bit of terminology when we start using the word overseer and the word elder. The word overseer, when we see that throughout God's word, it refers to really the function of an elder, just like a shepherd watches over the sheep, so an overseer watches over the church. Um, It's where we get the word bishop. The other word elder, which we often use, is a little more common, is where it comes from the word presbyter, and that is often used when we're speaking of the the wisdom or the maturity or even the age of of the one who is leading. And so for and so we'll see these words and they're used interchangeably throughout the New Testament. So he's using overseer here, but he could use elder as well. In fact, in Titus chapter 1, Paul uses both of them. He says in verse 5, gather the elders together and, and, and appoint elders in every single church. And then in verse 7, he says, now here are the qualifications of the overseer. So he says, appoint these men called elders, and then this is their role, and he refers to it now as overseer. You'll see the same thing in Acts chapter 20, where Paul will gather the elders, but then he speaks to them as overseers. And he calls this job a noble task, which means it's a, it's a good work. To be an elder is a commitment, it's a responsibility, it's a job, it's one that includes um, joy, it includes sweat, it includes tears. L- listen to how John Calvin, and I have this quote up here, listen to how John Calvin describes the role of an elder. He says, it is no light matter to be a representative of the Son of God. In discharging an office of such magnitude, the, off, the object of which is to erect and extend the kingdom of God, to procure the salvation of souls, which the Lord himself hath purchased with his own blood, and to govern the church, which is God's inheritance. I mean, that's a pretty powerful description, and I would say it's not an exaggeration. And so what I want to do is just to show that this role of elder, which, which Calvin, I think, describes in quite a magnificent way, he's not overstating its importance. Um, let me give two verses just to state the significance. Acts chapter 20, verse 28. Think about just what what the author is saying here. It says, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock. He's speaking to the elders of Ephesus, in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I just think, and we could spend a whole sermon right there. Elders are appointed by whom? The Spirit of God to do what? care for the church. Now, just so we don't miss the significance of this role, who's the church? The one that's been purchased by the blood of Christ. The church is the bride of Christ, the body of Christ. Elders elders are the means in which Jesus protects and cares for his bride. So men, I I just want you to think, particularly men right now, 
Who would you entrust to watch over, to care, and to protect your wife? Would you pick anyone? Would you pick a stranger? Would you pick the one who has no qualifications? What would those qualifications be? Surely you would choose quite carefully. So this is number one. Number two, second example, 1 Timothy 3.15. So this is just going to come in our own section. This comes right after Paul talks about elders, and then he talks about deacons, and then he goes right in to verse 15. He says, now if I delay, meaning if I delay in coming to you, he says, I'm writing all these things so you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God. So what's the church? This is interactive time. What's the church? It's the household. You just got to repeat the words in the Bible. Household of God. So what's a house? It's a place you dwell. Where does God dwell? Not in a building. Where does he dwell? With the church, with the people. Could be called the temple. Could be, we might go have to go tell Robert. I think he called this the temple, so we'll have to correct that a little bit, you know, just saying. Um, which is the church of the living God. So the household of God is the church of the living God, and it's a pillar and buttress of truth. When's the last time you used buttress? You're like, I don't know, I buttered my toes. That's close, but not quite. Um, Pillar holds things up. Uh, a buttress supports things, protects things, makes sure they don't fall. And so we could say that as the church is God's house, it's meant to uphold the gospel of truth and it's to protect the gospel of truth. So we pro- the church is meant to proclaim the gospel and it protects the gospel. It makes sure it doesn't get diluted. It makes sure the church doesn't deviate from that which is important, the truth of the gospel. And primarily, the elder is called to protect the purity of the church, the gospel, and proclaim the gospel. Elders are the means in which Jesus protects the church. Think of it like this. If a boat, if a boat comes to the middle of a lake and it stops, but it doesn't throw an anchor, what's going to happen? It's going to drift. See, you guys are good, right? It's going to drift. And where's it going to drift to? The shore. And what's it going to land on? The rocks, right? It's going to be good for nothing. It's going to shipwreck. So elders are used by Jesus to ensure the church does not drift from the gospel of truth. So that, that's the role there that they have. And again, as I, as I say this, once all remember, we're all used by the church to use our gifts for the building up of the church. But there's a couple roles that, that they specifically... Um, clarify which is elders and deacons within the church and what we see is that while not everyone will be an elder there are some who should aspire to be an elder if you look back at chapter 3 verse 1 it says the saying is trustworthy if anyone aspires to the office of elder he desires a noble task so what does that mean it means there are some who ought to aspire to be an elder we don't aspire for this position to obtain a position of power or influence, but we aspire out of love for Jesus, out of love for the gospel, love for the church. We aspire because we want the church to remain faithful. We aspire because we want to see the church cared for. We aspire because we want the gospel to continue to go forth to the nations. We aspire because we want God to be glorified. 
And so as we walk through these qualifications, I want to ask you men, particularly, would you consider if God is calling you to be an elder? It's something you, you should wrestle with. Whatever the answer is in the long run, we should ask ourselves, is this something that God is leading me towards? Maybe today, maybe, maybe next year, maybe in three years. And so women, I urge and encourage you, pray that your men would consider this role. And if that is to be the case, that you would be willing to support them. And just in case... Anyone is sitting here going, well, no, I, I could never be an elder. Let me just point out something real quickly. These qualifications that we're about to look at are primarily about character. And ultimately, they describe the character of Christ. And when we read them, we're, we're to think Christ. Ultimately, we're, we're seeing who Christ is. And so elders are called to live like Christ, so we would lead others to Christ. But regardless if you ever become an elder, regardless if you're a man or a woman, we ought to strive to have the character of an elder. So if you're sitting there going, well, I don't know if I'd ever be one. Well, remember, whatever we're about to look at right now, this isn't just for elders. We could go to different parts of 1 Timothy. We go to 2 Timothy. We go to almost every book in the New Testament, and we can see the qualifications listed here for an elder being applied to the church. So, so as we read them, don't go, well, I'm not an elder, so this doesn't really refer to me right now. He's describing what we all ought to look like, and those who are elders, it's been uh, affirmed by the church that they are living like this, so they would lead others to live like this. So, we'll look at the character of an elder. Number one, he is to be above reproach. Now really, this word just kind of covers everything that we're about to read. It's like this big umbrella word. In fact, if you look at verse 7, verse 7, the last qualification, speaks of an elder having a good reputation outside the church. So we kind of start with a good reputation inside the church. We start with a good reputation outside the church. So what we see as an elder is to be above reproach wherever he lives, in and outside the church. His character doesn't change with the group of people he's with. He doesn't wear masks. To be above reproach is not meant to communicate perfection, but maturity. So we don't hold anyone to perfection. Never do that. Don't hold any of the elders in this church to perfection. By all means, do not do that. But we do hold one another to maturity. Thomas Schreiner, New Testament theologian, said this, defining this term to be above reproach. There ought to be no evident grounds for denial of the office. And there are many positive reasons to commend the person. And I like that. Often we just kind of say the negative. There shouldn't be anything negative that just sticks. But I like how he then says, there should be many positive reasons that we commend this person. Why is this important? Because elders represent Christ to the church. Elders are under shepherds and Jesus is the chief shepherds. Elders are to be the living, fleshly, tangible example of Christ, which is why in Hebrews 13, 7, <clears throat> we read, remember your leaders those who spoke to you the word of God, consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. 
Just as Paul said, Paul said, imitate me as I imitate Christ. Elders ought to say, imitate us as we imitate Christ. If we are going to lead others to Christ, then we must look and live like Christ. Next, we see there to be husbands of one wife. If an elder is married, this doesn't mean an elder has to be married. But if an elder is married, he's to be faithful to their wife. They're to resist sexual immorality in any form of that. They're to reject pornography. They're to be careful with their interactions with women. And they do not place themselves within situations of compromise. And possibly, some have said, maybe Paul is speaking against polygamy. Maybe he's speaking against concubines. Maybe he is saying that those um, who have been divorced are not able to be elders. That's where many people will wrestle with. And there's good discussions to have around those ideas. But the clearest reading of Scripture seems to be focused on quality, not quantity. He's calling for men to reject sexual immorality and be faithful to their wives. And I want you to think about this. Just as Christ is faithful to his bride, the church, so elders would be faithful to their wives and shepherd them in love and humility. How can one shepherd the bride of Christ if he does not shepherd his own bride? So when you think about that, and men, I would encourage you to be always wrestling with, how am I shepherding my wife? How am I leading her towards Christ? Um, next, I, I'm going to group uh, quite a few words now. We're not going to look at them all individually. But under just this term of self-mastery, and, and I've wrestled with what that term is. And it's not my favorite way to um, describe all these words. But, but if you look, we read that an elder is to be sober-minded, self-controlled, and respectable. If you skip to verse 3, we read he's to be not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, and not quarrelsome. So if we just take all of those together and say, what's, what's Paul communicating at this moment? He's saying an elder is one who is in control of his emotions, of his actions. He thinks clearly. He doesn't overreact. He lives a life that bears up under scrutiny. This is a man that's gentle, thoughtful, and kind. He knows how to respond. He knows how to correct. He knows how to be corrected. An elder is not a bully. He's not reckless with his words. He desires unity, and he strives to maintain unity within the church. These qualifications do not come by mere osmosis, by being near God's word, or just by being in the church. They come from a life of dependence upon God in prayer. And so what I want to encourage you, men and women, is that these six words would describe your character. Sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, not a drunkard, not violent, not quarrelsome. I mean, just think about this. Husbands, wives, how would your home life be transformed if these words described your character? Men, if you want to show your wife and children Christ, pray these verses, pray that you would be gentle. Pray that you wouldn't be quarrelsome. Pray that you'd be sober-minded. You would think clearly. Women, if you're going to show your husbands the love of Christ, pray these words. When we gather together, we ought to be praying 
Words like these as we're coming to gather on a Sunday morning. Lord, as I, as I come to church this morning, help me to be sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable. Help me to not be violent, not quarrelsome, not a drunkard. Help me to come to build up the church. May there not be anything in me that distracts from the gospel or divides and creates disunity within the church. Every time you're meeting with someone else, whether they're a believer or an unbeliever, God, how do I demonstrate your character? So I want to encourage you, pray these words. Yes, they're, they're given under the qualifications of an elder because elders are, are striving and, and trying to maintain unity at all times, not at the compromise of the gospel, but that we would demonstrate and show the life of Christ. But every believer here is to show these character qualities in their lives at every moment of the day. So our prayer ought to be, help me to be gentle, Help me to be patient. Help me to be sober-minded. Father, give me self-control and help me be respectable. Help me to love one another as you have loved me. These qualifications do not come, again, by simply just reading, by simply just attending. They come from prayer. They're coming from saying, God, I need you. I need your grace in my life. And you can have great confidence that when you pray these, this is exactly what God is doing. Because in Romans 8, 29, we are told that he saves you and predestines you to be conformed to the image of who? His son, Jesus Christ. You're saved to be transformed into the image of Christ. We're given a picture of what that image looks like right here. So if you pray this, God will answer it in time. It's not like a slot machine. Pull it. Now I'm gentle. That would be amazing. But I encourage you, pray these over and over. And I'm convinced that God often is slow in the way he builds these qualities within us because he's teaching us to depend upon his grace with every relationship we are in. Does that make sense? Like there's, there's no relationship you have where you're going, God, I got this one. I know how to handle the things at home. I know how to shepherd my wife. I know how to shepherd my kids. I just need your help at work. You know, every relationship we're in, we need God's grace so that we would demonstrate the character of Christ. Number, or the next one. We see he's also not a lover of money. I wanted to particularly point this out. This is a man who's not consumed with things of the world. And here in America, we need to fight against this on a regular basis. And I think this often is forgotten within the qualifications of an elder. So many people, and maybe you're here and you've said this, maybe you're here and you've heard this. I'm going to assume this isn't going to be new information, but many people, when they see a successful businessman, they automatically go, that guy would make a great elder. It is often thought that if a man is worldly successful, he'll be successful in the church. If a man enters into the church wearing a suit, drives a nice car, and speaks eloquently, we say, wow, it would sure be good if he was an elder. Have you heard something like that before? Some of you are like, yes. Some of you are like, no. Where do we get that thinking? Like, where does that thinking come anywhere in the New Testament where if a person has worldly success... We should ought to want them to be an elder. In fact, at the end of the letter, this is what Paul says. 
But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. Elders love the gospel, not money. This doesn't rule out a person with money, but it ought to make us all examine him all the more closely. Because all throughout Scripture, we see that we can be distracted from our love from God and the gospel by the things of this world. And the moment an elder begins to love the things of this world more, he will no longer be focused on the gospel, and the truth of the gospel will not be what's proclaimed. So I want us to look at the role of it. We've kind of looked at the character of an elder. There's two things that are listed that speak of the role of an elder. In other words, what does an elder do? <clears throat> now, Paul doesn't give us a comprehensive list. Here at Timberline, we would describe them in four uh, in, in four categories, and in keeping with the idea of an elder as a shepherd who watches over sheep, we would say an elder is to know the sheep, care for the sheep, feed the sheep, and protect the sheep. Those are the words that we use within um, our elder meetings, and those are what we use when we're in our new member classes, how we describe the role of an elder. Paul's going to give two roles of an elder right now. He's going to say they are to be hospitable, meaning is his house is a place of ministry. An elder uses his house to care and to minister to others. I said this before. I'll say it again. You should never affirm an elder if you don't know what his house looks like. You should never affirm an elder. Because elders know that God has blessed us with houses that are places of ministry. That's what they are. It's where we dwell, but it's a place of ministry, whether it's people within the church coming in, whether it's the people outside the church, but it's a place of ministry. So that's one, and we can spend more time there, but I wanted to spend majority of our time on the second one where it says he is able to teach. And we read that at the very last part of verse 2, where it says he's self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach. The elders be skillful in handling God's word. Now, this does not mean every elder will preach like this where I am right now, but it does mean an elder is able to communicate the truths of God's word, whether it be in a setting like this, whether it be downstairs um, with the junior church, whether it be like in a youth room, or whether it be one-on-one -on -one with another believer at a coffee shop talking through the truths of God's word, whether it be at a table group where they're leading there. But he's able to communicate the truths of God's word because he knows the truths of God's word. In Titus 1.9, we read this. It says, He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and to rebuke those who contradict it. Remember, the, the elder is making sure the gospel stays at the center of everything we do in the church. And so the moment something rises up and we go, wait a minute, that's not true. That's not from the gospel. We gotta, how do we correct that or how do we confront that? The whole context of this letter is false teachers have come in. They're leading people away from the true gospel. They're divisive and they dilute the truth of the gospel. Have you ever made lemonade with way too much water? Have you ever done that? 
My kids have done that at times where we're making lemonade and they put, you know, way too much powder in. It's really potent. You're like, wow, it like makes the glands like swell. That's, I like, actually, I love that. It's like terrible. It's like one of those things you love and hate. But diluted lemonade, that's just terrible. And so that's what's happening here. And so as elders, we're making sure that the church is understanding the truth of the gospel at its full potency every single week. We protect and proclaim the gospel. We, remain sure, we, we ensure that we do not drift from the gospel. And so I, I want to take a moment. I want to speak on preaching. And I do this for multiple reasons. I do this because uh, we have a lot of people who will leave this church because you're military. So, so come potentially next year. Uh, some of you might be leaving to go to another station. This last year, we had about 70 people leave the church because they're military, and they got uh, relocated into different uh, places. And so you're going to need to be looking for a different church at some point. Um, and that's hard today in America. And so I just, I just want to speak a little bit on preaching for a moment and the importance of it. Martin Lloyd-Jones he was a tremendous preacher in the 20th century. He wrote a book titled Preaching, Preaching and Preachers. And in this book, he writes about many things that should happen when preaching is taking place. But this is one thing he says. He says this, the preacher must be a serious man. He must never give the impression that preaching is something light or superficial or trivial. This doesn't mean that preaching is without joy or liveliness. But there, what he's saying is there is a weight to preaching. So I just want you to think about that for a moment. When an elder stands before the church at the pulpit like this with the word of God open, there is something very, very powerful that's happening at that moment. Preaching is not a TED talk. Preaching is not, it's not trivial. It's not light matters. It's not a time to joke. But rather, preaching is about beholding the living God who sent his son to die on a cross so we who are sinners and deserve death and eternal judgment would be saved by his grace, forgiven of our sin, and granted eternal life so we would live with him forever. Preaching is about hope. It's about life, death, judgment, grace, mercy. Preaching is about the most important matters of all of life. Preaching is about eternity, heaven, hell, and the very glory of God. The Puritan Preacher Richard Baxter said this, I preached as never sure to preach again as a dying man to dying men. I just want you to think about that. There has to be weight in this pulpit. There are too many churches that suffer from weightless preaching. If there's no weight here, there'll be no weight in the church. What I mean by that is the preaching sets the tone for everything in the church. If, if the preaching is casual, then the church will handle the word in a casual manner. If the preaching is serious, it's weighty, then the church will know that this, this book matters and we need to handle it with weight and with care. And we need to obey it and live accordingly to it. Preaching is a primary means in which not only elders feed the church, but also protect the church. So I, I greatly want to encourage you. When you're looking for a church, you have to listen to the weight of the preaching. 
How does he handle it? What is the tone which the church sets at this moment? And I know I'm not a funny person at all. Like, when I come up here, I, I don't have anything that's ever funny. If you laugh, that's by God's grace. Like, trust me, all by God's grace. Um, but I do want us to know this is God's word. And there is no point for me to come up here and give you six steps or ten steps about anything in life. But all I have to offer is what this word says. And to hopefully do so in a way that's led by the Spirit for the building up of this church. And the only people that should come up behind this pulpit are those who have that gift to preach this word to build up the body of, church, the body of Christ. And if you're going, listen to the preaching. It sets the tone for everything. If you compromise here, it will be led out in everywhere else in the church. Lastly, the affirmation of an elder. And I term it like this because in verses 4 through 7, we're given three more qualifications. But these qualifications are, are kind of, they stand out by themselves because each one of them, Paul gives reasons for. Like in verse 5, Paul says, an, or in verses 4 and 5, Paul says, an elder must manage his own household. Why? Because in verse 5, if someone doesn't know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? Verse 6, Paul doesn't appoint a new believer to be an elder. Why? Because he says he might become puffed up with conceit and fall into condemnation of the devil. Verse 7, an elder must have a good reputation outside the church. Why? So that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. So there's a lot we could say about each of these. Let me just give three things. Number one, every man is called to shepherd his own house. Every man is called to shepherd his own house. So, so Paul's saying, look at his house. Because that's what men do. Men shepherd the house. So look at the house. If you're going to see if a man is, is qualified to then shepherd God's house, the church of God, look at his house because every man is called to shepherd his house. We see that in the Old Testament. We're in Deuteronomy 6. A man is called to teach his children the word of God at all times of the day so they would know it, know how to live by it. In the New Testament, we're told that fathers are to instruct their children and to do so so as not to embitter their children. So you're to look at a man on how he manages the house. For one, it will tell you how he will manage God's house. But two, just remember here, men, we're all called to manage our houses, to shepherd them, to love them, to care for them. You are the primary means in which God uses to shepherd your house. You are the means in which God has placed in your wife, in the life of your wife, to draw, to draw her towards Christ. You are the very means in which God is using to draw your children to know who Christ is. This is the biblical role of a man and of a husband in the house. So when he says, look at the house, this isn't strange teaching going, we got to look at the house? Never even thought about the house before. This would be everyone going, well, yeah, we look at the house. Because every man is called to shepherd his house. And so I want to encourage you, man, wherever you're at in that, that is the role that we have. And one of the things we desire here at Timberline is to equip you and strengthen you to do that. So we do have books out in our bookstore, and we always have books for men 
and women in the house on how to do uh, Bible times within the house, on how to shepherd your house, on how to lead your family closer to Christ. Number two, we must see here, elders are under attack. Twice we read in these last three qualifications that we must be careful that an elder doesn't fall prey to the attacks of Satan. Satan loves to attack elders. He wants them to abuse their power. He wants them to fall into temptation. So this is being written to the church, to Timothy and to the church. So our response ought to be, we need to pray for the elders every day. We pray that they would love the gospel. We pray they would not be distracted from the gospel. We should pray these character qualifications that they'd be sober-minded, they'd be respectable, they'd be gentle. Pray that they would not become distracted by the love of money. When you pray for the health of the elder, you are also praying for the health of the church at that moment too. So I, I encourage you, pray. And I invite, I need your prayers. Chris is one of our elders and Ozon is one of our elders. We need your prayers. This is not a job we do in our own strength. If we do that, we utterly fail. And that would be the same with everything that we do within the church. We need God's grace. And one of the ways that we receive that is through your prayers. So please pray for us. Number three, churches must use wisdom when affirming elders. We must be careful and prayerful when affirming an elder. Has he demonstrated maturity and perseverance? That's what these last three things are looking at. They're cautioning the church. Hey, remember, these things are important. He gives us reasons why they're important. This is one of the reasons. So here at Timberline, we started an elder candidacy process this last year. The whole purpose of that process is how do we become more and more intentional on raising up men that they might be elders within the church. This candidacy process gives men the means to shepherd the church, show their love for God's church, and desire to protect uh, its purity. And so that's, that's one of the reasons we have done that. And I want to invite you men, if, if any of you want to be a part of that, we would like to have a conversation with you regarding that. So I want to close, and I want to come back to, I want to encourage you to pray. Men especially if God would lead you to be an elder. I just want to pray. I want to urge you to pray. Remember, God gifts, gives every believer gifts within the church. Every believer has been gifted. So everyone's called to serve. The question is, where? So I just want you to begin praying. Would God, would you be leading me to aspire to be an elder? So women, I, I encourage you, pray for your husbands. Pray the shepherd well in the house. Pray they'd be used in the church. And pray they would consider this calling. And if they do so, that you would support them and encourage them. Now, if some of you are thinking, I could never be an elder. And you're thinking, I, I, I'm just disqualified. So I know that this does not apply to me. I'd ask you, number one, why do you think that? Like, why? Like, I have conversations all the time with people, oh, I'd never be an elder. Like, Why? What I often hear is someone responding by something that has happened in their past. And they say, well, this has happened, so I know that this would no longer be possible or potential. And I just want to say, your past sins do not necessarily determine your future path. 
I find that people who hang on to their past sins tend to minimize God's forgiveness and his grace. So real quick, I just want to end on giving two examples of men in God's word who have utterly failed and God uses elders in the church. Number one, Paul. Paul arrested Christians, killed Christians, attacked the church. He, get this, if anyone should be disqualified, Paul convinced believers through torture to deny the gospel of Jesus Christ. When you get to Acts chapter 7 and 8 and and Stephen's being killed and people are throwing rocks at him, who's holding the coats of the men? Paul. He's affirming everything that's going. He's watching over. He's approving of Christians being killed. And yet, what do we know about Paul? He wrote this letter. He wrote about 13 letters in the New Testament. He planted the majority of the churches in the New Testament. And this is what we read in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 12. I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service, meaning to be used as an apostle, though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent, but I received mercy because I'd acted ignorantly in unbelief. That's a pretty amazing testimony of someone who utterly failed, attacked the bride of Christ, and then used to build up the bride of Christ. Number two, Peter. I just want you to think about Peter. One of the disciples, one of the apostles, walked with Jesus. He's the one who said, look, Jesus, I don't know about these other guys, but I ain't leaving. Like, I'm stronger than everyone else here. They can deny you. I won't deny you. And what do we know happened? Jesus is arrested. Peter's approached by the lowliest of people, a servant girl, who asks him, aren't you one of the apostles? I mean, this is a servant girl. This is no authority There's no peer pressure that's happening right here when the lowly servant girl talks to Peter and says, aren't you one of those who followed Jesus? And he denies it, but not just once, but three times. So the Savior's been arrested, the ones he's devoted his life to. He said, Jesus, they will all leave, but I won't. And when Jesus says in Matthew 16 that he must go to the cross, he he rebukes Jesus. That's a little audacious. To which Jesus said, get behind me, Satan. So here we see that Peter denies Jesus three times, and yet at the end of John, you see the power and the beauty of God's grace where Jesus comes to Peter, and three times he talks to him about feeding his sheep and tending his sheep and caring for the church. The one who denied him is now being entrusted with the very bride of Christ, with the sheep of the shepherd. Let us never minimize God's grace. God would love for you to believe lies that you can't be used in the church. But I want you to think the church is meant to demonstrate the grace of God. And we do that not through perfect men, but we do it through those who've been transformed by the grace of God. So I want to encourage us. Let us be a church that takes eldership seriously. Let us pray for men to be elders, for the protection, for the purity of the church. Let us praise Jesus, our Savior, that he gifts every single one of us with gifts to build up the church. We particularly last week, deacons this week, elders, 
particularly looking at those roles, but every one of us has been gifted up as a means that Jesus himself is caring for the church. And so let us praise him that we've been gifted so that the name of Christ would continue to go forth and that the body of Christ would be built up in love. So I'm going to pray, and then the men will, uh, will dismiss you by road to come up, and we'll take communion together this morning. Father.